All right, I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrew. For the season of Eastertide, which is this little slice of the Christian uh, calendar, the church calendar, uh, between Easter and Pentecost, we have been camped in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and uh, maybe the most famous chapter in the whole Bible. It's the, it's the Bible's, uh, in many ways, it's the Bible's kind of magnum opus uh, about love. And as I've been thinking about this, I think this may be one of the most important sermon series uh, that we've done here. And I say that because, you know, as a church, we say this every single week, that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love, how to love God and how to love our, our neighbors in Midtown. And this, this chapter is like a graduate level, you know, master's class on how to do that. And, the, you know, there's 14, depending on how you count, there's about 14 different facets, features of love that Paul lays out for us in this passage. And I was going to look at three this morning, but there, there's so much jammed into this. I, I decided to, rather than keep you all here for two hours, we're just going to look at one. One feature of love, you find that in verse 5. Paul writes, love uh, does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. There is so much jammed into this little phrase. I mean, is this like a universe of, of meaning that's just crunched into eight words? So uh, what I want to do is just look at this under three different headings. I want to look at the, um, uh, the opposite of love, uh, the evil twin of love, and the economics of love. So all of that 
crammed into these you know, few words, the opposite of love, the evil twin of love, and the economics of love. So first, uh, what do I mean by the opposite of love? Well, he says, you know, love doesn't insist on its own way. There's another uh, English translation, the New International Version, the NIV says, uh, love is not self-seeking. And both are trying to get at this idea that love is not preoccupied with self-interest, with uh, demanding that you get your own way and then just bulldozing over uh, anybody else who disagrees with you, just rolling over other people's desires or opinions and preferences, but you insist on, on your own way. And so the opposite of love is self-seeking. Love is, is others-oriented, not, not self-oriented. And, and you hear that and you think, okay, there is nothing more unnatural than this. Uh, the, um, the last Beatles song that was ever recorded was a song that George Harrison wrote called I, Me, Mine. We're playing a lot of Beatles in my house these days, so I'm just swimming in Beatles. Um, but the, the first line of that song uh, goes like this. I put it in your bulletin, but it goes all through the day, I, Me, Mine, I, Me, Mine, I, Me, Mine. And he's basically just making this point that the default disposition of the human heart as you go through the day you're just saying, and you're hearing other people saying, I, me, mine, me first, what's in it for me? I want, you know, me, mine, me, I. And uh, if, if, if that's not just automatically overly obvious to you, all you have to do is walk down this hallway and uh, round the corner and pop your head in our nursery. And you're gonna see a couple of toddlers in a life and death tug of war match over a block while they're both shouting, mine, M mine first, it was mine. Point is, is that human beings become preloaded like that. I don't, I, you know, I don't think their parents taught them to act like that. Maybe, maybe y'all did, I don't know y'all, but um, uh, we, we come preloaded saying, mine, what's in it for me? And in fact, that instinct, that impulse, it doesn't go away even though we get older. In fact, it just gets more sophisticated, a little bit more uh, you know, subtle, but I'm willing to bet that almost every conflict you've ever been in, in all of your relationships, is a result of two people's wills clashing together. Two different people who are, who are insisting on their own way, and that's causing the uh, friction. But Paul says, love is not self-seeking. That love is considerate. Love is deferential. Love is willing to uh, deny, put aside your way, your desires, your comfort for the sake of somebody else. Now, there is, there is um, this message maybe clashes uh, like no other with our particular cultural moment because we're in a particular cultural moment that says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, what is healthy and right is for you to assert yourself, for you to be yourself and define yourself. And we prioritize self-help and self-care almost above all things. And so here comes this message that says, don't seek yourself, but deny yourself. And for us, it just, it feels uh, confusing. It feels wrong. It feels uh, unhealthy. Maybe in the most extreme version, it feels dangerous. Because we can hear this and think, okay, wait, 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 what, what are you telling me? You're telling me I just have to be a doormat? 
and I just have to defer to everybody else's will and desires but mine? I, I won't have a self at that point if I'm just a, being absorbed into what everybody else wants me to do. You telling me that, that taking care of myself, going to counseling is, is, is wrong or unloving or unhealthy? You're telling me it's, it's wrong of me to get a, a mani or a pedi or a massage that I can't take care of myself? Is that what you're saying? Well, you see, so you see this tension that gets set up here. And uh, I, I've, been, I've been reading and referring to this um, author named Lewis Smedes who wrote an entire book over 1 Corinthians 13, and he had a really helpful hot take on, on this question. And here's what he said. He said, quote, our self can either be a means or an end. Our self can either be a means or an end. And he fleshes that out, and here's what he means. If, you're, if your self is the end, if it is the ultimate goal, if it is the thing that you are aiming at, meaning that you are going to prioritize yourself and take care of yourself and pamper yourself so that you can be the most idealized version of yourself, whatever that is for you, the most successful, the most athletic, the most attractive, the most, you know, whatever. If that's the thing that you're aiming at, to be the best, most self-actualized version of you, he says things get easily twisted into you basically adopting a whole approach of life of entitlement and you give yourself a free pass to ignore or disregard other people, especially people that aren't helping you on that quest for you to be the best version of yourself. So if yourself is the end, the thing you're aiming at, he says things get wonky. But if yourself is the means, then that means that self-care is really important and is really necessary. I mean, just think about Jesus. Jesus himself uh, he took care of himself. He, he retreated. He had boundaries. He broke away to pray to take care of himself. And, uh, but he wasn't doing that so he could go be Mr. Awesome Jesus. He did that in service to this greater goal of love of God and love of neighbor. He was willing to take care of himself for something else. Jesus said this, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, there is a lot loaded into that, but here's basically what he's getting at. Our assumption is that the path to life and meaning and satisfaction and joy is by you going and getting yours and you asserting yourself and you demanding your rights. And he says, if you do that, if you fight to preserve your life, you'll actually lose it. That is the path towards frustration. That is the path towards corrupting your own soul. That's the path towards you just beginning to think that the whole world revolves around you. And that's miserable. It's counterintuitive. And it's paradoxical, but if you are willing to set aside your desires, if you're willing to set aside your comfort, even your own needs, for the sake of somebody else, you're beginning to learn what it feels like to, to be truly, fully human. That death is what leads to resurrection. You, you, you discover yourself when you deny yourself. There's a... Um, children's book, children's story that I heard recently read at Idlewild Elementary a couple weeks back. Uh, the book was called Thank You, Amu, O-M-U. And it's a story about this girl, Amu, who makes this uh, delicious batch of thick red stew. 
and it smells amazing. The smell of this thick red stew is wafting through the streets of her neighborhood, and everybody starts smelling it. And one by one, people start showing up on her doorstep, knocking on the door, saying, oh my goodness, what are you cooking in there? Because I need that now. And uh, she very generously, very graciously shares her thick red stew with them and gives them a bowl, and they enjoy it and run off. Another person comes up, oh my goodness, can I have some of that stew that you're cooking in there? Yes, absolutely. Bowl after bowl after bowl after bowl after bowl. And then at the end of the story, uh, she sits down to eat her dinner, and she doesn't have any left for herself. And to, to her surprise, one by one, all of these people show up with dishes of food that they have made to thank her for the soup, for the stew. So in the end, she actually has more than she started with. But the way that she got there was through giving and through giving and through giving and expecting nothing in return. And it's this beautiful picture of somebody who emptied herself and yet discovered fullness. And so here's the question. Are you somebody who can set aside your desires, your needs, your preferences for the sake of somebody else? Or do you enthrone your desires and enthrone your needs and then demand that everybody else recognize them and affirm them and then they exist to meet your needs? Paul is saying love does not insist on its own way. Love is not self-seeking. Now, I know we are, um, we're already kind of swimming in some deep waters with all of this, uh, but we're going to go deeper. We need to go a few leagues deeper into the, into the ocean, as it were, because I want you to see that love, it has an opposite, but it also has this evil twin. We need to talk about this evil twin. Here's what I, here's what I mean by this. To, to get at this, I want to talk about... Um, uh, a book that I just read last week. I just finished reading C.S. Lewis's novel called Till We Have Faces. It's the last book he ever wrote. In his opinion, he thought this was the best book he ever wrote. His good buddy J.R.R. Tolkien said, I think this is the best book you ever wrote. But it was kind of a commercial flop. It didn't get a, it didn't get a lot of commercial success. And, uh, and yet, y'all... This thing's amazing. It is brilliant. It is creative. I, I read it last week. It's a slow read. It is not a page turner. It's no Harry Potter. It's going to take you a while to get through it. But I pushed through it and I read it. And I'm so excited that I read it. And I've been trying to find somebody who's read this. Who can I talk about this with? Nobody else I've has met that I, that I can talk about it with. So I'm just going to talk about it with y'all. And because um, it's such a great book and I'm so excited about it. But here's the story. The story is, um, uh, it's written from the vantage point of this princess named Arul, and her mom dies when she's young, and she's raised by her father, the king, and the king is awful, he's the worst, he's cruel, he's always telling her that she's ugly, that she's hideous looking, he calls her a goblin, he's just like the worst. But she is raised with this messaging, and that creates this kind of core wound in her that she believes that she is unlovable. And so later on in her life, she starts to wear this veil. It covers her face. She never takes it off, never lets anybody see her face again. And this, the veil functions as this really cool symbol in the story because not only does it hide her true self from everybody else, but it also hides her true self from her. It's the story of self-deception. 
And it's fascinating because you go through this, the journey of her life from her vantage point, and you experience all these relationships that she has. And, it, and they, they're wonderful, amazing relationships. She has this younger sister who she loves and she's so loyal to and protective over. She has this emotional kind of affair that she forms with one of the soldiers in the, in the kingdom. She has a mentor that she's close with that she just admires and loves and loves. And she's just, she has these three relationships that she just loves so fiercely. And yet, as her story unfolds, each one of these relationships gets destroyed. They're lost, they're ruined, they're broken. And it's this tragic, awful, painful story because you're experiencing it from her vantage point. But you get to the end of the story, and I'm not going to spoil everything. But she has this encounter with the gods. It's kind of a mythological Greek mythology thing. And so she encounters the gods, and the veil gets removed. And she has this moment of clarity where where the blindness is, is lifted, and she looks out over all of the carnage of her life, all of these broken relationships, and she begins to realize, oh, it's because of me. She has this like Taylor moment. You know, I'm the problem. It's me. And she begins to realize, oh my goodness, this thing that I was calling love my whole life, I've discovered it was actually something more like greed. Because what she begins to realize is that she was not giving of herself to bless these other people and to bless these relationships and expect nothing in return, she had moved into the world from this position of deep inner emptiness, and she was taking and taking and taking and devouring people to try to fill up this thing that was lacking in her. And the whole time she's doing it, she is convinced she's loving, she is good, she is right, and yet the whole time she's destroying all of these relationships. In fact, listen to how she describes herself. This is, a, this is an amazing sentence. She says, all of my relationships were a web. I, the swollen spider, squat at its center, gorged with men's stolen lives. I mean, that's an amazing image. My whole network of relationships has been a web, and I have been a, I'm a swollen spider that has just been gorging myself on other people to satisfy my own emptiness. C.S. Lewis, in a different book, says something very similar. His book, The Screw Tape Letters, um, I, I, included, uh, I included this in your bulletin. This is written from the perspective of a, of a demon, of a devil, but here's what he writes. He says, in human life, we have seen the passion to dominate, almost to digest one's fellow, to make his whole intellectual and emotional life merely an extension of one's own. On earth, this desire is often called love. In hell, I feign that they recognize it as hunger. Now, here's what he's saying with all this. We so often confuse love with hunger, that all of us move into this world and we we have these relationships and we can relate to people in ways that it feels like love, it looks like love, we're passionate about this person, person. we're passionate about this relationship, it feels so intense, and yet it's, it's not love, it's love's evil twin, it's hunger, 
dressed up as love. In fact, let me give you an example. This is, this is a little subtle, but I think it's important. Uh, whenever I do premarital counseling with couples, you know, a couple gets engaged, they want me to marry them. I sit down with them in, the, in my office, and we sit down, and I always ask them this question in our first session together. Why do y'all want to get married? There's a you know, bazillion women in the world. Why would you ask her? There's a bazillion dudes in the world. Why would you say yes to this, this dude? And over the years, uh, every now and then I'll get an answer that sounds something like this, where the guy or the girl, that, you know, somebody will say, uh, I'm so, here's why, because I'm so much happier with her. I feel so amazing around her. We, we, have, we have so much fun together. She has just totally enhanced my life. And that is true, and I'm sure that's right and beautiful, but yet when you think about it, you realize, okay, wait, the way that you answer that question, you're not saying what you love about her for her sake. You're saying what you love about the benefits of her being in your life. You, you, you love not her, but what she does for you. You don't love her as an entity. You're using her as a commodity to meet your own needs. That's not love. That's called hunger. And this plays out in a million different ways. Let me give you another one. Let's think about parenting for a second. You can, um, you, you can be the kind of parent where you put all of this pressure on your kid, pressure to be perfect, pressure to look perfect, and uh, they've got to be involved in a million different things. They've got to be the best on their team. They've got to get straight A's, and there's all this pressure. And you can tell yourself, well, I'm doing this because I love this person. I want them to succeed in life. I'm trying to set them up well for life. I'm protecting them. And you can, you can think that about yourself, and yet this pressure is smothering them and devouring them. And you begin to realize, okay, wait, I, I'm not loving them for their sake. I'm loving them for mine. I need them to be successful not for their sake, but because I need them to fill up something that's lacking inside of me. Or think about the jealous uh, spouse, the possessive boyfriend, the possessive girlfriend. Uh, maybe you have the jealous um, uh, boyfriend who says something like, um, I love you so much. I'm so committed to you. I'm so devoted to you. I want you all to myself. So it, I feel I would... I would ask when you go to uh, this party this weekend or when we're in group settings, would you just not talk to any other guys in the room? Would you not uh, interact with them? And, or maybe they say something like this where they say, um, you know, I love you so much. I feel, so, I feel so intensely in love with you that if you were to ever break up with me, if you were to ever leave me, I, I, would, I would be so devastated. I, I would hurt myself if you left me. And it looks like love, maybe, but it's hunger wearing a costume of love. It's looking at somebody and saying, I'm going to possess you. I'm going to rob you of your personhood to feed something that is empty in me. I'm going to hold you hostage in order to fill up this emptiness inside of me. And that's not love. Love does not seek its own. Love is not self-seeking, but it can look like it. That's love's evil twin. And when you start to think about your own life, and if you're willing to be honest with yourself, even uncomfortably honest with yourself, you begin to realize, oh my goodness, I am 
so far away from this. I don't know if there's a relationship or an, uh, an area of my life that I'm not moving into and at least thinking in the back of my mind, what's in it for me? How can I get something out of this person? How can this person bolster my sense of self? And then you begin to wonder, oh my goodness, have I ever loved anybody in my whole life? I'm completely consumed with myself. And so the question is, well, what do you do? What can we do? Is this even possible? Can you be selfless, others-oriented? And the Bible says yes. And so we have to talk about this last thing. We've got to look at the economics of love. It's the opposite of love, the evil twin of love. What do I mean by the economics of love? I'm getting this language from a, a pastor, author named Tim Keller, famous name. You've, made, you've probably heard of him, guy up in New York City. Uh, in one of his sermons, I once heard him say that um, the way to love is, is simple economics. That you can't, in, in the same way you can't be generous with your money, you can't give money away if you don't have enough money to, to take care of your own needs. If you don't have enough money to just feed yourself or your family to get through the rest of the day, you can't be just recklessly generous. And in the same way, you can't love, just give away love, give away, give away, give away love if, if, if you don't have any. It's just, you know, it's, it's simple economics. You can't give away what you don't have. And so he makes this point. He says, if, if you're going to be generous with your money, if you're just going to recklessly give it away, give it away, give it away, you have to have an endless stream of money coming in. It's the only way that would enable you to be that kind of, that recklessly generous. And in the same way, you can't be recklessly loving in the way that 1 Corinthians 13 is inviting us and calling us to do unless you have an endless stream of love pouring in, an endless stream of love coming in. And he says, and Jesus says, I can give you that. And so the question is, okay, how do you get it? How do you tap into that stream, as it were? Two ways. The first way is to admit that you're hungry which is uncomfortable for us because that means that we have to admit to God and to ourselves. We have to take the, the veil off. We have to get rid of the self-deception and actually admit, I come into this world with a core wound and I'm looking to devour people and money and relationships and institutions to feed this thing in me. And if, if you're resistant to that, if you say, that is not me, I'm not, a, I'm not this swollen spider, that's a grotesque imagery. What I'm doing is loving and it's good and it's right. You, you will never be able to tap into the stream, as it were. The way to tap in is to first admit that you're hungry. And then secondly, bring your hunger to Jesus and receive his love by faith. I mean, think about Jesus. Think about what the gospel tells you. The gospel tells you that Jesus did not seek his own. Jesus was not self-seeking. If he was, if he had enthroned his desires, his priorities, and his comfort, you know what that would mean? He could have saved himself a trip. He didn't have to come down here. But he comes down here, and he, and he dethrones all of that, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. And in fact, right before he goes to the cross, he's, he's praying in the garden. And he says, Father, if there's any other way to love these people, if there's any other way to save these people, to redeem these people, let's do it a different way than, having, than me having to go to the cross. And yet, not my will, but your will be done. And the Father says, there is no other way. 
And so he submits his will. He's deferential. He gives and he goes to the cross. And as he is giving every last drop of himself away on the cross, the last of his breath, the last of his blood, the last of his reputation, he's giving it all away. All the soldiers are mocking him. They're laughing at him. They're saying, hey, you're so powerful. Mr. Jesus, you're so awesome. You're the king. If you could save other people, save yourself. Preserve your own life. And what they failed to recognize is that Jesus was not interested in seeking his own life. He's up there seeking theirs. And he's seeking yours. And he's seeking mine. And when you realize, okay, this is a love that is otherworldly. This is a love that is willing to give away everything. This is the infinite, endless stream of love that we need. This is what will fill you. This is what will give you the resources to move into the world from a place of fullness, that you actually have a self to start to give away to other people. You have inner resources to give rather than a deficit that is only taking. You know, I want to mention one last thing from that book, Till We Have Faces, because it's too good to not include before we finish. But you remember the the girl, the princess, Arul, who had the, the, the veil? Right before, uh, at one point in the story, I'll just say, um, she unloads all of her rage and her anger against the gods. She looks at them and says, y'all are, y'all are so indifferent to my suffering. Y'all are the worst. Uh, y'all are unloving. You're just up there being silent. You're controlling everybody like puppets, and you're the worst. You are unloving, and you should be judged. And it's this courtroom scene, and of course, then she gets exposed, and she's totally vulnerable, and she begins to realize about herself, okay, whoa, let me get this straight. They're not the ones that should be judged for being unloving. I'm the one that should be judged for being unloving. And she's undone, and she then, at that moment, instead of experiencing the judgment that she deserves, she experiences mercy. And she's not judged. And she's not punished. And that is the moment when she's finally liberated, when she's finally filled. It's this one-two punch of knowing I am unloving in and of myself. And yet at the same time, I am loved. I deserve judgment and I've received mercy. And then she has this um, beautiful, uh, she gets reunited with her younger sister. And I, I put it in your bulletin because it was too, uh, it was too beautiful to, to not let you put your eyes on. But here's what she says to her uh, younger sister. She says, never again will I call you mine, but all there is of me shall be yours. That's the moment. She says, never again will I just possess you, consume you, devour you. Mine, mine. I'm not going to use you to fill me anymore. Instead, what does she say? All there is of me is yours. She's filled. In other words, she has a self, and she's freely giving that self away. That's what the gospel does for us. It liberates us. It fills us. It gives you these inner resources. In fact, what it does ultimately is, is it, it gives you a self. You actually become your true self when you know that in and of myself, I'm, I am unloving and yet I am loved. So the freedom that gives you now that you have a self, 
You're free to give it away. And that's the invitation for you and for me this morning. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we uh, confess uh, this feels so foreign to us. This feels so far from us. I pray that you would open up our eyes, as painful of an experience as that may be, that you would give us the courage to admit what may be painfully true about ourselves, that everything that we do is shot through with self-seeking. And Father, I pray that at that same moment of, of wounding us, of exposing us, that you would also flood our hearts with an awareness of your love and of your mercy and of your goodness towards us that you would come seeking after people even like us. Would that so fill us that we might be the kind of people that freely, willingly, lovingly give ourselves away for your sake and for the sake of our neighbors. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.